uh, growing up in white evangelical churches, I often heard this statement or this idea repeated over and over again, often in different ways, but it was the same idea. And it was something like this, like Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jewish and Christian faith, is the only real God. All other faiths worship a fake made up God. They're just out there just making stuff up, and we're the only one worshiping a real God. And uh, most of my secular friends outside of the church would say something like, well, all faiths are made up. Every faith just thinks theirs is the only one that isn't. And they would argue with me that all faiths should be treated equally, that is, as equally made up beliefs. And their logic was, look, people keep fighting over their different beliefs. They keep fighting over which religion is right and killing each other. So let's just all agree that they're all made up, they're all worthless, but you do you and I do me and whatever makes us happy is good and we'll move on. Um, and so these were kind of the two ideas I grew up with hearing from my secular friends and from my church. And so as an adult, I wrestled with this. Is the idea that Yahweh is the only real God and everyone else is just delusional and their God's fake really the claim of Christianity and Judaism? Or does the secular viewpoint, does it really work? Does it really eliminate wars and conflicts to just say, you know what, let's just act like they're all made up and you just do whatever feels good for you? Or is the answer more complicated? As usual, the answer is pretty complicated. As I read more of the Bible, I realized that the claim of the Old and New Testament writers is a little bit more complex than what I was handed. In Exodus 20, verse 3, it, um, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. This is God, Yahweh, speaking to the Israelites. This is going to be the key verse for our series. Our new series is called No Other Gods, and it's going to be about idolatry. Notice the command wasn't, hey, I'm the only God. And so if anybody makes up any other gods, they're completely fake. He doesn't say that. He says, you can't worship any god but me. There are no other gods, must be no other gods beside me. The implication is that there are multiple gods, but Yahweh doesn't let you include him in a pantheon. He must be worshipped without any rivals. Now, before you get confused about what I'm saying, don't misunderstand me. I think the biblical authors make it very clear that Yahweh is the creator God, and nothing and no one who exists does so except because he created them and gave them being. The biblical authors also saw the gods, though, of rival nations not as imaginary beings, but as spiritual beings like God but less than him, created by God but not God acting as gods but not Yahweh. And this is key. They saw these lesser spiritual beings as attempting to steal the glory and worship worthy only of God. But when the Israelites fought another nation in Scripture and they were worshiping some other god, they weren't like, hey, your god's made up. You just imagined him. We've got the only real god. Take, for instance, 2 Kings uh, chapter 3, verses 26 through 27. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king. He offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. Then the fury against Israel was great, and they withdrew and returned to their own land. What's going on here? Israel was on the march. They were marching through Moab, their enemy nation. They had been in this conflict, and um, they were laying waste to city after city until the king of Moab was trapped in his capital city. He tries to break through the lines of the Israelites with 700 men. He can't get through, and the Moabites worshipped a god named Chemosh. 
And so he took his son up on the walls of the city and killed his son as some type of sacrifice to Chemosh, this false god. And there was some type of supernatural fury that was unleashed on the Israelite forces that literally made them retreat when they were within inches of total victory. Some dark spiritual force that the Moabites called Chemosh demanded blood and gave favors in exchange for it. And so this is important for us to establish before we get into this. People didn't worship idols and pagan deities because they were stupid. They didn't worship them because they were primitive or they were uneducated. They did it because worshiping them worked. And people worship idols today for the exact same reason. Idols promise us quick paths to what we really want, but they ultimately cost us way more than we ever want to pay. They promise pleasure, but deliver heartbreak. They promise identity, but deliver anxiety. They promise insight, but deliver lies. So why would anyone ever pick an idol over God? Well, um, we sing about God never letting us down. We've sang that song here before, right? He's never going to let me down. Guess what? Last year, I felt let down by God. And there's probably some times in your life where you felt let down by God. On a theological level, it might be true that God won't let us down. But on an experiential level, it feels like God has failed us. And as you look back over your life, there might be many, many moments where it feels like God has failed you. And it is in those moments that idols look most appealing to us because they promise a quick solution to our pain and to our problems. After all, if an employee consistently fails us at work, right, we'll look to hire someone new. If our gym disappoints us, we'll find a new place to work out. So why shouldn't we explore a new God when ours doesn't meet our expectations? Idolatry is sneaky because it appears to offer us what we really want when Jesus doesn't seem to be giving us what we ask for. It masquerades as a path to a life of flourishing. Now, a couple key distinctives in this passage that we just read about Moab. Chemosh wasn't a name for Yahweh. This wasn't the same God they were just worshiping in their own way. They asked for very different things from their followers. They were on opposing lines of a battle. Chemosh wasn't some made-up idea. Sacrificing to him actually drove the Israelites back. Every God isn't another name for Yahweh. Every God isn't fake or some made-up idea. There is a battle for your attention. There is a battle for your affection among cosmic beings that we cannot see. Now, growing up, I thought of idolatry as something that happened long ago. Like there were some primitive people gathered around a fire, and they carved a wooden pole, and they started chanting to it or something. Or I imagine as something happening like in some distant country, in some like far-off land. But idolatry is much more common than that. Because idolatry is when someone or something gets the worship that Jesus rightfully deserves. And the gods may go by different names today, but don't assume that they are all made-up ideas. Now, if you're a purely secular person, purely a materialistic person, a person of science and reason, this is going to seem crazy. Because I'm not just saying, hey, there's a God out there. That's hard enough to believe, right? I'm suggesting that there are rival spiritual beings vying for the attention and the affection of human beings. And that seems outlandish. Just as a modern, educated Westerner, I hear that and I'm like, I'm saying the words, but it sounds like craziness. But please stick with me for a few weeks. Let me make my case, okay? Give me a few weeks to convince you. 
So what's the goal of this series? What do I want to accomplish with this? I want to compare Christianity to other world religions. I want to discuss modern idolatry and how it comes to play in our lives. I want to discuss, what about the righteous person, the Muslim, who is just like such a good person? What happens to them in the judgment? What happens to them in Jesus' kingdom? Should we be allies with other religions? Should we be antagonistic with other religions? Should we be something in between? I want to cover all that in this series. I know, that's a huge premise. Will I be able to cover it all? Probably not, but I'm going to try. I'm going to do really hard. I'm going to attempt to wrangle it into something manageable over the next few weeks and talk about Jesus and other gods. So let's start simply. Do we have idols in our life? And no, I don't mean like, do you have a little statue in your basement and you go down there and burn some incense on it and you're like, I really need a new car. I really need this bill paid. Uh, you might do that, but I don't think so. That's probably not most of us. I don't mean if you have a secret stone or wooden carved image. Um, what I'm talking about are, are there things we look to in order to provide us with stability, direction, and hope that are not Jesus? That's an idol. Things that we look to to provide us with stability, direction, and hope outside of Jesus. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote a book called American Gods. They made it into a TV show. I didn't watch the show. I started reading the book. This is not a book for kids. Super graphic. I couldn't get all the way through it. You know, Neil Gaiman's a great writer, but it was intense. But the book's very interesting because it imagines a world where the Norse, Egyptian, and African gods walk among humans, but they were increasingly losing power because no one worshipped them anymore. They were worshipping new gods like technology, media, and conspiracy theories. He called these the American gods, the new gods. Although it's a work of fiction, I think there's something really insightful about that. Human beings are natural worshipers. When people stop believing in a god, they don't simply believe in nothing. They're not just like, well, now I believe in nothing. They fill that void with something. For instance, several social commentators have described the new religion of America as politics. Why are so people so passionate about politics? I'm like, it literally, I, yeah, anyways, I'm, that, I could get down a tangent. I won't do that. People are passionate about uh, politics in America because it has become the new religion. It's their faith. It's what they find their stability and their hope in. Religious activity in churches in North America have been plummeting in the last few decades, and at the same rate that they've been declining, the rate of fierce political polarization has been rising because people who have been replacing their Christian faith with a political faith. People see their favorite political party as promising the good life and offering up an understanding of the truth giving a path to the life of flourishing we all want. Political parties have become the new American God. If we can just get our man, if we can just get our woman in the White House, everything will be better. If we can just beat those immoral Republicans or those immoral Democrats or those immoral Green Party or, you know, whatever other party, if we could just beat them, if we can just pass this law, if we can just repeal this law, then things will be good. Idols. That's American politics today. This is going to be our loose definition of what a god or is an idol is. Something or someone who promises, promises us the good life for our devotion, worship, or attention, and claims to have the truth, an explanation of reality that helps us make sense of our shared life. When people become atheists, what I find is they, they're not just like, well, no, I have no belief. I don't believe in anything. They usually elevate science to the role of God. It's what they look for to find truth and understand happiness. 
And science is great. I'm not anti-science at all. I love vaccines. I love science. Thank you, modern medicine. It does help us understand some aspects of reality, science does. I'm grateful that a thermometer can help me find my temperature, but a thermometer cannot help me find love. A thermometer cannot help me love my neighbor. While science is wonderful and can answer many questions, it can't tell me what is good or bad. It can't give me moral answers to things. It can simply tell me how things are. Um, to butcher a quote from Jurassic Park, it can teach us to um, clone dinosaurs, but it can't answer the question, should we be cloning dinosaurs? It can help us answer fundamental questions about life, but it can't answer the question, should we be asking this question? Should this be what we're spending our life on? Should we even be attempting this? It can't answer the biggest questions of life we all have, and every human being has these questions, who am I? Why am I here? What is good? What is right and wrong? What happens when I die? We all naturally ask these questions, and science is amazing, but it can't answer those. Idols are often when we take something good and we elevate it to a place that they weren't meant to be. Robert Mulholland describes idols like this. Anything we look for to satisfy our deep need for happiness that doesn't go by the name of Jesus. What are you looking for to satisfy your deep need for happiness? If the answer is in Jesus, there's probably an idol in that spot. So before we look at different religions, before we discuss whether or not a devout follower of a different God has any shot at joining Jesus' kingdom, before we talk about any of that stuff I'm going to talk about over the next few weeks, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Because just because you're in church on Sunday, just because you have a Bible in your house or you pray or you call yourself Christian, doesn't mean we don't have idols we are looking to to define what is true and provide us with the happiness that we all long for the human heart is bent towards idolatry it's always looking for love and truth in all the wrong places and i don't know about you but as i look back over my life i can see that over and over again i keep looking for love and truth in all the wrong places so let's go back to the passage that we said was going to be um, kind of the key passage for our series and see what we can learn about idolatry and where it might be at work in our lives. This is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. God spoke all these things, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, nor on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh, your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his in our English translations, Yahweh is translated as the Lord. Most of your translations will probably have Lord in all caps. In Jewish tradition, they had such a reverence for the name of God, they wouldn't even say it out loud or write it. And so they would use titles like Adonai, which translates as Lord or Master. And so when a Jewish person would read the Hebrew scriptures and they would come to the name Yahweh, they would say Adonai, Lord, instead of saying Yahweh. Because they're like, who am I that I would even be able to say his name. They had such a reverence and respect for it. God had revealed his name to Moses in um, Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked God, like, who's sending me to rescue Israel? When they say, which of the gods is sending me? Who do I say? And he said, say it is I am who is sending you. 
From those four Hebrew letters for I am, we get the uh, English letters Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels in Hebrew. And from that, we get the name of God, Yahweh. So verse 2 actually reads this, I am Yahweh. And in Hebrew, the word for God is Elohim. He says, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. It's the same word used in verse 3. It's the same word used for false gods throughout the Old Testament or other gods. Elohim. You shall have no other Elohim other than me. And Yahweh further explains that, look, you want to know which Elohim I am? I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm not some other Elohim. I'm that one. Our human tendency is to get confused about what God has done and what other people have done. Sometimes we blame God for things that people do. Sometimes we blame God for the consequences of our own actions. And God's like, look, you want to know what I did? I took you out of Egypt. I rescued you from slavery. I rescued you from bondage. That's me. That's where I've been working. Next, notice that Yahweh says he's not to be represented by images. He says, don't carve something from the skies. Don't carve something from the land. Don't carve something from the water to represent me because none of those images represent who I am. Why couldn't they make an image of their God? Almost every other God has some kind of an image, some type of focal point for people to worship or draw their attention to, why would there be no images of Yahweh? Well, for one reason, God already made his image, and humans weren't to attempt to make their own images of him. In Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The word image there is the same word that's used for idols or carved images. God is literally saying, if you want to look like at an image of me, it's not something carved out of the wood or out of the stone. It's human beings. That's what I've made in my image. Human beings are the physical manifestation of God's role and reign of his spiritual power and influence in the material world. This is why the New Testament authors say things like this in 1 John 4.20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, in parentheses, made in the image of God, cannot love God whom they have not seen. Um, I have a friend here at work who visited Japan last year, and I have a friend uh, this year who's planning a trip to go to Japan. And um, one of the things about visiting Japan is it's, the culture is very different. And so they're studying up all these things that they have to do. And when they go and visit a temple in Japan, the things that they have to do and kind of like the ways they have to be respectful of the temple. If you walk into a temple in Japan, you got to walk through the Hori Gate, but you don't walk in the middle. That's where the gods walk. You got to walk on the left or the right once you come in. Then you come up and there's a basin of water. You got to wash your left hand first then your right hand, then you take a little bit of water and rub it on your face, then you carefully walk up into the temple, you're going to bow and put your hands together, but don't clap your hands, that upsets the gods, you don't clap your hands, put your hands together, you bow and you toss a coin into the box, and so it's like very carefully regulated, because they have a lot of respect for their temple, and they don't want tourists coming in and just treating it like garbage, if you walked into a temple in Japan, and you started graffitiing on their statues, or you started shopping at the Hori Gate, or you started like taking souvenirs off of stuff, you would be arrested or kicked out. Why? It's a sacred place. You're not to desecrate a temple. But that's exactly what we're doing when we use harsh words with other humans. When we tear down other humans, when we hurt other humans, worse, when we're violent or vindictive with our neighbors or families or friends or co-workers, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
People who carved wood and stone idols weren't idiots, though. Like, these aren't, people in the past weren't dumb. They didn't think they could make a god, like, hey, look, it's a god. They recognized that the unseen speaks through the seen, the spiritual is manifest in the physical, and God speaks through human beings. Look at verse 5. You may not think of Yahweh as jealous. Like, if you ask me, is Yahweh the God of the Bible? Is Jesus jealous? I'd be like, no, jealous is a bad word. That's a negative connotation in English. Um, when you hear the word jealous, you probably think of a narcissist. You know, somebody who's so insecure, they're controlling, and they want all the attention for themselves. But a better description for God, um, instead of jealous, is that he's fiercely loyal. He's never going to cheat on you. He's never going to uh, stab you in the back. He wants that same level of commitment from you because he's fiercely loyal. Let's read the rest of the verse there. Notice what it says here. This is a very hard verse for people. Um, verse 5. I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. I've talked about this verse at length in a previous series, so I won't repeat all that now. It is a hard verse to wrap our heads around. Why all this talk about punishment and punishment lasting for generations? That doesn't feel fair. God's punished me for something my parents, my grandparents did. Yahweh seems to be telling people there are consequences for what we worship, and those consequences affect generations. What you worship will affect your children, it will affect your grandchildren, it will affect your great-grandchildren. A.W. Tozer said, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. We tend by secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. We like to think that our actions don't affect anyone but ourselves. We're like, I'm independent. I'm my own person. I can do what I want. I mean, that's naive, though. Everything you do has ripple effects. What we do, especially who we worship, has profound influences on those around us. Uh, my daughter has uh, started to say, Old Mac Josh, Old Mac Josh, Old Mac Josh, because I say, Oh my gosh, all the time. So literally, as I go around the house going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I forgot this, oh my gosh, I forgot this, I repeat it so much, my daughter has picked up on it, but of course she doesn't say it quite right, so she says, oh Mac Josh, oh Mac Josh, oh Mac Josh, as she walks around. <laughs> there she is, in case she didn't believe it. Because I grumble, oh my gosh, all the time, she started to repeat this phrase as everything, at everything she does. Children see how real and deep the faith of their parents are. I think many of my millennial friends are deconstructing their faith because the faith their parents handed them was shallow. It was about being comfortable and safe, about the next life, and it had nothing to do about loving the least of these or your neighbors in this life. And it had an effect. Now, most scholars think about this passage that the big importance thing here is not that God's going to punish someone who didn't do something wrong, but they think that it's really about the contrast between God saying, hey, if you hate me, it affects four generations, but if you love me, it affects a thousand generations. They think that this contrast was God trying to show people he's much more about blessing than he is about punishing. 
His blessings last a lot longer than his punishment. His punishments are short in comparison to his love. Far more than he corrects us, God loves to give us good. Now, the final command here in this passage is about the name of God. Now, growing up in churches, I was told, don't say, oh my God. In fact, instead, why do I say, oh my gosh, all the time? Because churches told me saying, oh my God, was really, really bad. That's taking the name of God in vain. Um, Growing up, I was told that that's what it meant. You know, you came out and you found a flat tire. Say, oh my gosh, I got a flat tire. That sucks, you know. Um, Instead, you say, old Mac Josh, and you move on, you know. Somehow that's better. But that's probably not what God was actually talking about here. He probably wasn't saying, hey, you know what? If you worship idols, this is going to happen. If you do these things, this is going to happen. He goes through this whole list, and at the end, you better not say, oh my God. That's really got me fired up, you know. It's probably not what's going on. Most theologians are convinced Uh, That the name of God wasn't about swearing, but about misrepresenting God. God here was entering into a partnership with Israel, and he said, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be my God. When people look at you, they're going to see me. When you do things, I'm going to get blamed for it. I am now tied in with your story, and so when something happens to you, when you behave badly, it reflects on me. Anybody, when you were growing up, did your parents ever say, like, Now, when you go over there, you better not act poorly because it's going to look badly on us. It's going to look badly on me. You better behave yourself at that party because it's going to look bad on our family. That's what God's saying. He says, now you're taking on my family name. You're taking on my name. You better represent my name well. The Israelites were God's people, his representatives to the world, his image, if you were. They bore his name, and so what they did, how they treated their neighbors, how their society functioned, reflected on him. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we bear the name of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the one who laid down his own life to save. The way we either fight for power, the way we either hate our neighbors or lay down our power for the good of others and love our neighbors reflects Jesus to the world or it muddies the water so people are confused about what Jesus was really like. The biggest issue I feel like that most people have with Christianity today is that Christians look and act and love nothing like Jesus. The things Christians are passionate about are things Jesus was never passionate about and it muddies the waters about what Jesus is like. We bear the name of Jesus, and we bear his name in vain. We take the name of Yahweh in vain when we misrepresent what he is like through our teaching, and especially through our lives. Idolatry is sometimes making a God of our own liking, creating a God in our imagination, a God who always blesses us but never commands anything, a God who never corrects us and always supports us even if we choose ruin. We can invent a made-up God and call him Jesus. That's taking the name of God in vain. That's another form of idolatry. We use his name in vain when we call our make-believe gods Jesus. So as we close today, What should we do? May I suggest three things to get us started in the series? Number one, ask God to reveal your idols. Don't assume you don't have any. Assume that the human tendency is towards idolatry. Ask God to reveal your idols. Two, take steps to dismantle your idols. It's one thing to realize you have an idol. It's something else to begin to take steps to dismantle them. Number three, renew your allegiance to Yahweh, to King Jesus. Say, you are my God, Jesus. 
I am your servant. You are the source of all my affection and attention. And forgive me for giving it in other places, in divided places. I want to give it all to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are God and that we can know you, that we celebrated communion because of your life and death and resurrection and ascension. We can have a relationship with God, the creator. And God, I pray that you will help us to know you better so we can resist idolatry, so that we can turn our heart from the things that promise happiness, but end up costing us way more than anything should. God, may we come to you and give you our full devotion. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.